Hey, Off the Cuff listeners. This week we're doing things a little different. We recently recorded with a guest who I've been excited to have on for a while, and I cannot express how grateful I am to have her on the show. But during our session, things were just different. Uh, There was laughing and learning, but there was also crying and vulnerability. Um, And all this great session made the editing process a little bit challenging for me. I felt like cutting out so much would be a disservice to our guests because her story and what she does are amazing. So this week, we are releasing three episodes in a three-part series of Off the Cuff With. And I think I speak for Kat and I when I say we definitely went off the cuff. Uh, So we hope you enjoyed the episode and the next two, which will all be released this week. We sure had a good time and we hope that the audience can take away just as much as we did. We want to thank our guest, Jamie Gonzalez, for taking time out of her busy schedule to just sit and chat with us. It truly was a great conversation. So please enjoy. All right, what is up, everybody? That girl, Danny, back with another episode of Off the Cuff. Guess who's with me today? Okay, well, she goes by many names. No. <laughs> oh, me? You. Oh. <laughs> I do go by many names, actually. Uh, hey, it's your girl, Cat with a K. That was rough, dude. But yeah, okay. Was, yeah. See what so happens when you don't. Okay, guys. <laughs> I had, like, you know, life happened to me, so couldn't be here a few times, right? It was more than a few times, but I'm over it. Oh, my God. She's so <laughs> salty right now. <laughs> Just kidding. Kat is back with us, y'all. I'm super excited. Also excited. We have a special uh, guest today. Um, So I don't even know where to start, but we're going to go with the uh, name. So on her birth certificate, she is known as Jamie Gonzalez, a.k.a. Puta. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> but if you don't feel comfortable with that, she's also known as a produce lady. So, Miss Jamie, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you, ladies, for having me here. Super excited about this. Today. We're super excited to have yes. you. Call me any of the names that you want to. <laughs> <laughs> can I just call you Puta? You can just. Call me. <laughs> that will be that just will kidding. be super awesome for this show. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yes, Miss um, Jamie, you and I actually met last year, I think. I feel, or it could have been two years now. It's Seclovia. Yes. It's It's been about a year. It's been about a year, right? Because I think it's coming up again this year, right? Yes. Okay, it just feels like really long time ago because, you know, life is just crazy like that. But yes, we met last year at Seclovia and I saw your booth and I was like, that looks interesting. And then I just approached you and then we started talking. So we've actually had this conversation about you being on for a while, but you know. Things happen. You're finally here. Yes. Thank you so much. Yes. Um, but yeah, so I just want to kind of get things going here. Why don't you share a little bit about who this Jamie Gonzalez is? All right. Um, so I am from San Antonio. I am actually a fourth generation San Antonian. Wow. Um, cool. And my family has been here since at least 1901 mm-hmm. in the traditional sense. Prior to that at the mission. So when, when we talk about lifers, I am a lifer. I have lived in almost every neighborhood in San Antonio at one point. My parents were the first Mexicans, that's what they called us at the time, uh, to own a home on their street, actually. Wow. Yeah, to own a home on their street. And we live over still today 
in the 7823 area off of Lake Bassey between West Avenue and Lincoln. Oh, so gotcha. what, is, what, what we now call the inner city of San Antonio, mm -hmm. not back then. Um, I've been in the produce industry for about 20 years, which is how my name came to be at one point. And I've had a lot of names. I was always the kid with the nickname. I always had the name that was pronounced incorrectly. And so I was embarrassed about my name because my name is Jamie. I don't call it, I don't spell it Jaime, but in San Antonio, I got called Jaime Gonzalez my whole life. Mm. Instead, I'm named after the bionic woman and nobody ever like really realizes how cool that is. But, <laughs> um, so usually it, people expect me when I walk in a room to be a man and, and oh. they come in looking for Jaime Gonzalez or I get calls for Jaime Gonzalez. And I, as I got older, I would tell people like, no, he's not here right now, but Here's your real asshole. And um, <laughs> so that's my other alias. And um, and I was the office girl when I started in the produce industry. It's a girl that worked in the office. I was the office girl. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't seem that demeaning and people weren't horrible to me. But as you get older, you don't want to be the office girl. Yeah. You know, you really don't. And, um, and I've been called a lot worse names and in a lot worse by chefs and stuff like that in the industry. Mm -hmm. So a few years ago, um, I broke my neck. And right before that, I had been joking with my children. I said I could call myself anything with a hashtag. And people <laughs> will listen to me differently because of the world that we live in today. Mm -hmm. And I started hashtagging myself Fruta de la Fruta that day. And about 18 months later, the world changed and everybody started listening to me different. And that was COVID. And it brought mm -hmm. legitimacy to the name. It made people comfortable in certain neighborhoods. It makes people uncomfortable at certain tables. Mm -hmm. And the minute you hear that, if that made you uncomfortable, then wait until you hear the rest of the stuff I have to say, you know? And so <laughs> it really changes the tone of things. Yeah. And it commands a different kind of respect with men, actually. For you sure. You really, really uncomfortable about it. Yeah. And that makes me very comfortable. And so, <laughs> right. um, and, and it was born from that, from this like badge of honor, from being, you know, I sold produce to everybody. I, I am the most spoiled person in food in San Antonio. I get to eat what I want, where I want. I get to cook wherever I want with whoever I want. I have sold produce to Wendy's. I sell produce to Johnny Hernandez. You know, I, I get to build these community programs now that are amazing, and I still have sold produce to like the San Antonio Food Bank. I get to do it with everybody. Yeah. And that's why you end up being the Buddha, right? It's yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. That's cool. Okay, okay. And so, um, and I really used it differently. I was never a traditional chef that worked in a kitchen. Mm -hmm. And in the part of the industry that I come from, in that warehouse part of it, in the underbelly of food that were the in-between, the farm, and that fancy restaurant chef that everybody's super impressed mm -hmm. with, mm -hmm. those are low-income, low-wage jobs at times. Mm -hmm. Those are the jobs that make the world go around, though. That is where food science is happening. Mm -hmm. Those are the people that feed 3 million people every day, mm -hmm. every single day in the city. Um, and so it, it came from that, too. I worked with a lot of chefs. I knew a lot more about produce than a lot of chefs. I helped them. It was a mutual thing. I have a lot of chef friends at this point. But I was not a chef to them. And I was mm -hmm. not allowed on that side of the counter for a long time, mm -hmm. that side of the kitchen. Um, and I was told that in a very undignified way multiple times. Like, you're the vendor, you belong at the table in a cute dress watching us cook. And I was more than that. I come from food, and I have a natural instinct with it. I know what people want to eat. I study people. I study mm -hmm. how you shop. I study how you eat. And I got to the point where I didn't want to be called a chef. It insulted me. 
because I was only ever called it in an insulting way, like, yes, chef. Mm -hmm. And when you're really in the kitchen, you know that that's actually, like, that's a huge insult. And so as I evolved in the culinary community here more and more and really moved into food advocacy, I realized that I should own the name chef as well. And it was about a year ago that they got me into a chef's coat comfortably for the first time. Mm. And that was because of the work of the San Antonio Current and the stories that they've written about me. And when they put me in the flavor edition, I was the first person that wasn't a restaurant chef to be featured that way. Mm -hmm. When I competed in the flavor competition last year, I was the first person that was not a restaurant chef to compete. And then I and then I won. I tied with Christina Zhao. It's freaking Christina Zhao from Dashi. I mean, come on. And a friend. But, um, <laughs> and that's really helped me understand, like, my role. Because people started to listen to me different yeah. in how I talked about food, even though I wasn't a Stephen Bowers or a Jason Davey, which I like those dudes too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the current really listened to that, and it resonated with them. And they gave me a platform to talk about the food work that I was doing that was not happening in a restaurant. And mm. I, I am grateful to them for that. And I've been in the current twice now in the last year. And so, um, and they've and they've helped my work once again. And I applaud them for looking at the food that way as well. Sure. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. I, I, I guess, you know, you mentioned earlier I did my homework. Not, not well enough because I would have never guessed that you – that that's the industry that you are coming from. I think about produce and I think about what you do for the community. So I wouldn't have ever tied the two together, but you mentioned um, just talking about the things that go on in the kitchen that no one ever talks about. Right. Can you share like an example of oh, something yeah. that... Yeah, that people don't talk about? Yeah. Oh, okay. So kitchens are notoriously dirtier than you think. And um, <laughs> True story. Yeah, absolutely. I'm like, oh, I'm one of the worst people to go to the restaurant with. I really, I am. I have a food safety background from yeah. working in like food manufacturing as well. Um, like I said, I've done it all. So I'm the food guy. And so, um, and one of the things that used to happen in the late '90s when I started out in the industry was um, the restaurants that were in Alamo Heights back then. They were not subject to the same types of health inspections in the mm. restaurants in the city of San Antonio. Yeah. Mm. And you'd go to a more expensive restaurant, and this restaurant no longer exists, which is why I can tell you this story. But the chef and owner is still around, so I can't tell you who it is. <laughs> but um, they, they would flood in their kitchen every day because oh, wow. of the pipes. Yeah. And when you would walk in to deliver, there was always like an inch and a half of water that everyone was standing in. And um, those are the things you don't hear about. Yeah. Those are the, yeah, the long days, though. You know, it's not glamorous, though, either. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of wonderful chefs that I've worked with in a lot of ways over the years. And the the things that we all, that work in the food industry, the things that we put our bodies through Mm -hmm. and mentally Mm -hmm. what we subject ourselves to because we enjoy what we do, um, people don't realize that, you know. Mm -hmm. You see memes now where it's like, there's like two cooks huddled in the back of the kitchen squatting over like a trash can eating like a sandwich (laughs) that's literally going on like they eat the worst they smell the worst they talk the worst you know um but they are my favorite people to play with food with yeah and getting to see the nuances of that and how it's evolved over the years like there's a lot of stories that if I told, I would be banned. I would be banned from the food world. Uh, I would be banned from the food world. Jeff White would come after me. And um, 
but you know it it was from those times that I've had my lowest times people that work in food no matter what we do will tell you that the highs are high and the lows are low we will say that but when you work like in the produce industry like the lows are like the lowest of lows like Mm. they like there's no way to even believe what that is and to be in a kitchen it's the exact same thing you know you have these moments where you love what you're doing for as long as I can remember all I ever wanted to do was feed people Mm -hmm. and I was much older when I realized that there was most of my life I was doing that in a variety of ways even if it wasn't just with tangibly with food Mm -hmm. but the times I felt the best the the best time I ever had in my jobs that I had over the years um they were all in food and those times are the times that you always went back to and that you find the most joy in and the camaraderie and the community of what that is, not just like when you share food at a table and like in a kitchen, mm-hmm. but amongst people who work in the food industry, the highs and lows of what that is. Sure. And the sheer joy and the sheer terror of what food is every day. Yeah. Um, we have the most job security in the world. I have more job security than For anybody sure. else. Everybody eats. They don't stop eating. All they do is change. It's like the mill. Yeah. It never all, stops. All they do is change how and why they eat. Sure. And those of us that have learned over the decades how to respond to what that is, we we survive and then we thrive. And mm-hmm. sometimes it gets really tired and low again. And mm-hmm. we go through COVIDs and those types of things. But then but then we come back. Yeah. It always comes back a little bit different. Yeah. Um, this time I think it's coming back in a better way than it did when I saw things like 9-11 happen or the economic downturn that happened years after that. Sure. You know, this was the most devastating thing that any of us ever saw. Um, there's a part of the business that I that I help operate that is not the community work that you all invited me here to talk about. Sure. But with just with like the regular just restaurants and chefs and caterers yeah. and that high end niche that we have of mm-hmm. in our Unifresh work, we lost ninety percent of our business overnight when COVID shut everything down. Mm-hmm. Um, the dark secrets of that when everybody is supporting local, when everybody says eat local, when all of the, not all of them, but when a lot of these restaurants were getting PPP money, getting bailed out, and those things, the produce company still did not get paid. Mm. And so imagine that most companies uh, are paying us 30 days behind anyway, because we're operating on a large amount right. of credit. We were coming out of the holiday season. Big, big bills, because we were coming mm. out of the holiday season. And, you know, these restaurants were devastated. They shut down, they got hurt, they closed. When they received that PPP money, they used it to try to respond and stay afloat. They did not pay their old bills. Yeah. And in the food world, liquor gets paid first, meat gets paid second, the broad line distributor gets paid third, and the produce always gets paid fourth because everybody sells produce. And yeah. and that is the dark side of what that is also. Sure. You know, we were standing in the back, still working. We never shut down. There was no way. You're feeding schools and hospitals and restaurants. Now the restaurants want to do takeout. And now they still want to buy, but they can't pay the old bills. And, mm. you know, that is our burden and our struggle. That is why we started the Big Fresh Market Box. Yeah. That is why um, we started the produce markets. Those were ideas that were prior to COVID. Mm-hmm. Those were things that I had tried prior to COVID mm-hmm. as well. And the timing wasn't quite right. I learned in those early sure. years what I did not want to do. I was also making salsa. But um, but I was trying to do markets. I was trying to do boxes. I wanted a farmer's market in a box. I wanted to be able to give people more variety of produce. I didn't want farmers to be at bougie farmer's markets 
spending a lot of money to be there every single weekend Mm -hmm. and they may or may not make any money Um, and if it's not the pearl and it's one of these parking lot ones that everybody wants to be at great social media presence nobody shows up at those Mm -hmm. Um, there's one actual farm most of the time they're not just selling the produce from their farm and that's okay I don't grow what I sell either but they're not honest about it and these vendors are paying to be at these like markets mm-hmm. you can't see my air quotes right now. yeah <laughs> markets though um and you go through and I've tried those markets in the past before I was doing like the way that I do it now mm-hmm. and you sit there all day and you pay somebody like 85 dollars to be there and the LuLaRoe lady sells like two leggings to like you and then right. like you know and yeah. then you go to that. right you go buy the the candle and then there's the lady selling the dog treats and then there's like <laughs> That's me at a market. She sells good dark treats. And and there's two kinds of cakes. And then there's, you know, and I'm not saying that those things should not exist. But they are not the money-making side hustle that is being sold in this community right now. That Mm. is the way. It is the MLM of, like, of of foodie stuff. It's like, help the community and help the environment and do this. And, like, the amount of money that you shell out just to be there. Yeah. And with produce, I never believe I should pay to be there. I'm the star. It's the freaking produce. And so, right. Um, our things are perishable. Mm-hmm. If the farmer goes out there and sits out there like that, he can't sell that produce again. I mean, he could technically. It's going to die faster. I'm By the sure. time he takes it back and gets it in the cold, and it's like, oh, those carrots like flop over. Mm-hmm. And most local farms grow the same five things because they're local farms, you know? And mm-hmm. so it, it gets hard to have a nuance of what that is. And you can't tell people. Everybody should eat the same five things that are growing in the area right now because it's more sustainable. Mm-hmm. I get that it's more sustainable. I'm on the Food Policy Council. But at the same time, you can't realistically feed the entirety of Bear County with that mindset. Right. And you can't tell people, well, if you can't eat that way, then it's because you don't care about food because that's not true either. Mm-hmm. The majority of us, we even, even when we have access to everything, we still don't know how to make the right choice mm-hmm. because nobody taught us and like nobody talked yes. to us about it. Right. Yeah. There's nobody there that was like, this is how much food you should have in your house. Yeah. But not only that, it's also like, like food and health wise, like your gut's the most important, you know, part of your body that regulates and does all these things for you. And we're over here eating meat like three times a week and it's just not healthy for us, but yeah. we didn't learn this. Like, any skill that we need in real life, we kind of didn't learn in school. Right. And I tell people, I'm like, okay, so I'm, I have food privilege. I don't have a lot of privilege. I wasn't born with very much privilege. And I'm also very short, so I don't have, like, a height privilege or anything, right? But, <laughs> but I have food privilege. And I had food privilege not because of how much money we had. Not because of, like, that we could have the nicest food. Because my mother was born in 1947 at, like, the end of the depression mm-hmm. to, to depression era parents who were born on the south side were super poor my grandfather was from mexico my grandmother was not that right she was from here and <laughs> um and everything was eaten a certain way and hoarded and stockpiled yeah. and like i everything i ate came from a can all my vegetables came from a can growing up until i knew a produce family and that's how i learned about more produce but we weren't even eating it then i mean we weren't like that's not how we ate and things in cans are okay. Um, but that's all we knew, you know? Like, yeah. lettuce went on a sandwich, and that was it. And, like, and those were the basic vegetables that we knew. Mm-hmm. 
and um, and I wanted to know more about food. There was like a whole lot of reasons why. Um, but from a very young age, we start out with a very unhealthy relationship with food. Sure. We tell children two different things when they are young. The first thing we tell them is the thing that we think sounds positive. We tell children, you have to eat all your fruits and vegetables. You have to eat healthy. If you eat healthy, you're going to grow up to be big and strong. And this is, you have to eat this. You have to eat these vegetables. You have to do this. Without even taking into account what is actually available to them, not just in their their home, but in their neighborhood, right? Mm -hmm. Then we tell children, if you don't do well in school, you're going to self-food your whole life. Like, Mm -hmm. if it's like this mark on you, you know, like that, like only failures feed people. Yeah. I think the Eric Cooper from the food bank would probably tell you that that's wrong. Right. And I don't even always agree with the food bank, but that is the mindset. We grew up being told that if you don't do well in school, you're going to make French fries your whole life. I sell potatoes every day. Yeah. You're going to flip hamburgers. And if there wasn't somebody there doing that, then people wouldn't eat. Mm -hmm. And there are times that people won't eat. If there are not people who are developing better foods or better ways to store them or preserve them mm-hmm. or to use them or to create different kinds of access or to make them last longer naturally. I helped build a salsa for a number of years that is a preservative-free salsa that's built and that's made under high-pressure processing that retails for under $5 with no preservatives. It's an amazing salsa. I'm still biased. It's Cocina Fresca. You can buy it at H-E-B. Or the Good and Gather salsa at Target. Wow. And and there (laughs) is so much science that goes into what that is. You know, I tell people, I'm like, like in my bio, it'll be like builder, culinarian. And I had a friend that was like, who do you think you are, Bob the Builder? I'm like, hell yes, I am. (laughs) Let me show you how I built something. And so, um, you know, it's putting those pieces together. It's creating processes. It's making sure Mm -hmm. that the tomato that gets to you at that market or in that box or when we make salsa, or when we sell it to John Fernandez, that it's going to eat right and look right and be right, and that you should know how much you should want to have in your house and what it should look like and what it sure. should feel like, so that when you go to HEB, that you're a more empowered shopper because you know what more of those things are. You can't walk into HEB and be like, hey, what's that green thing that looks like a pear in the little plastic bag? Because there's that. Let's try out this squash. Oh, yeah. I was like, what is that? When <laughs> yeah. you go to H-E-B, you're going to go look for it now. And I like to sell try out this squash because that's one of those things where, like, you can Is that really... not a seasonal thing? It, 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 so, it's not. You can buy it all year round because of where it's grown. I've never yeah. seen it. I've, yeah. I've only seen it a few times and in the caldo. And H-E-B and they'll put it in the caldo kit. Like they, okay, so they like to put it in the caldo kit over the zucchini now. These are both soft squashes, but the try out the squash doesn't have as much water in it. It's so it right. lasts longer. Mm. So when I get people to eat try out the squash, if I put it in the box that we deliver or we sell it at one of our traveling produce markets, people are like, what is that? I'm like, oh, it's a try out the squash. Let me show you what this is. It is the lazy man squash. Why mm-hmm. is it a lazy person squash? Because when I go and I buy like a zucchini or a yellow squash, a regular soft squash, mm-hmm. a lot of water in it, a lot of seeds, right? Sure. The seeds and the water go together. I don't grow anything, but I know all these things. And so that means that it's going to die even faster Oh, because wow. of all the water in it. The minute you cut it, it's dead, right? And now it's just a, now it's it's just a race to decomposition. That's exactly <laughs> right. right. It's just a race to death. 
How dead is it by the time you eat it? My That's, avocado. Yeah. <laughs> yeah my and this is how I try to get people excited about food. I'm like, how dead is your food? Like, is it dead dead or is it healthy dead? And so with the chayota squash, though, you can go and buy that at the grocery store, at a market. Go to Michoacana. It's always at Michoacana. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's actually, it's widely used in Filipino cooking. Oh, wow. We associate it just with Latin cooking. But it's widely used in Filipino cooking, and it's widely used in Creole cooking in Louisiana. Okay. And I learned that from Ma Harper recently, from the Ma Harper's Creole Kitchen, because we oh, were nice. on SA Live together, and yeah. she's like, you know what that is? And she called it something different than me, and now we're friends. And uh, <laughs> now we're friends. We, we bonded over Chai the Squash. But you can leave it in the bed, you can leave it in the fridge, and forget about it. And a week later, it's still going to be good. A week and a half later, it's still going to be good. Nice. Probably even two weeks later. Um, <laughs> But the zucchini would have been bad in like four days. Oh, yes. So it's well-intentioned squash. It's the squash you should buy when somebody tells you, you need to start eating more fruits and vegetables. You need to start eating healthier. Mm -hmm. You're not getting enough fruits and vegetables in your diet. You know what? Everyone that tells you that is absolutely right. Okay? There is a difference between food insecurity and the greater nutrition insecurity crisis in the United States. Food insecurity is a terrible crisis. There, it, it is, and, it, and it's been around for decades, and we put systems in place 20 years ago that were supposed to help it, but they're not a long-term solution for mm-hmm. it. So things like pantries and food banks, while they're vital and necessary, the goal should not be to make those larger. They should mm-hmm. be that you should sustain them at a size so that the things that you are doing to, to fight the structure of what's causing that changes over time. And it's not just about cheaper or free. It's also about getting people to understand what they should spend their money on. Mm -hmm. Because like we talked about earlier, no one ever told you. No one ever told you. And if you only get stuff for free, right? Like, and and all of us qualify for a lot of those parking lot distributions now. There are less and less, like, requirements to say, like, income and those types of things. And it's a broader spectrum. And Mm -hmm. that's good for people. Mm -hmm. But when we do that and we become in this habit of never teaching people, like, Hey, when you have the extra seven dollars, here's three dollars. It's a good buy. This is yeah. this is going to take you further. This is and it's going to be nutritious, right? We don't create a habit. Mm-hmm. So the habit that we're actually creating isn't that we're spoiling people with free stuff. And I hear that people tell me that they're spoiled by the free things. I've been on both sides of those lines. There's no getting spoiled by a free distribution line. Mm-hmm. You get stuff. You're yeah. you're getting things to survive, mm-hmm. like you're eating to survive. But you're not eating to thrive, and you're not eating for joy, and you're not. Mm-hmm. And everybody deserves that. Yes. It's not just your that you deserve to eat, and so we don't have those conversations. No one ever does that. So of course, when you when you hear, oh, you have to spend money on this, and they're like, no, I get it for free all the time because you know the food bank gives it to me, mm-hmm. and if it's not good, I'll just go through it and I'll get what I want. Why am I going to spend money on that? It never looks good anyway, because you've only been taught to accept the bottom of the barrel of what that looks like. Mm. You know, they've only ever been taught that. No one's talked to you about like, hey, spend this on the grapes. Like, I don't buy grapes full price at H-E-B. They're expensive. Buy them at the 99 cent only store because they're less expensive and they're going to be sweeter. That's why they're not at H-E-B. People don't have those conversations. And that's how we also look at creating a long-term change, not just in access, but in how and why we eat, the mm-hmm. culture of how we eat. Mm-hmm. We want to be foodies, and we give people a really good reason to, to start to engage that, no matter what zip code they live in. 
when we don't do that, people feel crappy all the time. You yeah. know, I mean, there's not, and it was it was my early years of selling produce that I realized that there was a lot of reasons why we should feed people. And mm-hmm. I enjoyed the early years when I was learning about high-end cheeses and caviars and selling um, tomatoes to Wendy's and stuff like that and the government. But when I left uh, food for a number of years and I was in healthcare, uh, when I was in healthcare, I did social security representation. Mm. And I would travel through hospitals and I would help people make social security claims. Or if they were stuck in the system, I would help process them through that system. And I won a lot. I won so much that my husband said that the Social Security Administration was going to knock on our door and be like, hey, chill out. Like, we're giving away too much money to people. I won about 98% of the time. I took good claims, though. I represented 5,000 people in five years on paper. And up to the hearing level. When I left that, it was because I knew that my real contribution to healthcare was food. Mm -hmm. Um, My dad worked in the industry. We grew up around the industry. I was it was my favorite thing to do and talk about still. And when I came back into food in 2016, um, and came back to Big State Produce, which is where I started at, um, it was because I wanted to do that. Mm-hmm. And that's how I met the food bank. That's when those ideas first started. And I was on their development committee for a number of years. I helped them with their with their strategic plan for their farm. I helped them rescue produce off their own farm so that it wouldn't go bad and show them how to store it and keep it longer so you can give it away to more people. And um, and then we became vendors to them. And Big State Produce, who I also represent, um, they sell to the San Antonio Food Bank. And, and like things like the mobile mercado that exists, mm-hmm. that produce is coming from not just from their farm, but companies like Big State Produce. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're their primary vendor for that. And so that evolved and, and the way that I wanted to feed people evolved. When I was younger and we were starting out, I got to sell lemons and limes and orange juice to a lot of different bars and strip clubs, which was super fun also. (laughs) (laughs) That baked potato special was lucrative for produce companies. And so, um, but now we do still sell to people like that. But I also get to do home delivery produce boxes and create these markets that go out into parts of the city where, you know, a lot of people have never really been to a farmer's market. Have you been to a farmer's market? Just to the pearl. To the pearl, right? Yeah. And that is that like your only real frame of reference for a farmer's right. market? Mm-hmm. In a lot of places that are not San Antonio, farmer's markets look much, much different. And the reason why they look different is because there are more local farmers that are providing produce at them. Mm-hmm. There's a number of reasons why. You go to farmer's markets in California, you're in like the like the, the most bountiful produce area right. of the country, mm-hmm. right? And so right. you're going to see something different there all year round. Um, and you go out into the more rural parts of Texas, you'll still see a little bit more of a robust farmer's market. Mm-hmm. However, here, especially because of our proximity to HEB and the farms around us and their proximity to HEB, HEB leases and owns most of the farms around mm-hmm. here. And so like, they're not selling at the farmer's markets. Mm-hmm. And you get good farmers at the farmer's markets here. I know a number of local farmers Green Bear Farms, Braun Farms, Talking Tree Farms. Mm-hmm. Those are all amazing growers. I've done work with all of them over the years. And and they grow quality produce. Um, and they exist at the Pearl and in a number of other markets. Um, and that produce is affordable to a certain segment of the community. Sure. And the volume of it is available to a certain segment of the community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it can't exist outside of that. And their goal isn't really to exist outside of that. 
And a lot of us have kind of learned over the years how to figure out when that's okay. Sure. Even newer farmers and they don't realize that moment yet and they're trying to like change it all and I'm just like, How are you gonna feed three million people? There's three million people in Bear County. Oh, I know. You yes. Know? And so yeah, and so that that becomes a little bit different. And so like I do a lot of work with Gardopia in the food policy council aspect of it. And Stephen and I have some different views about food. We're friends. Um, we're both on the board together, food policy council. However, we have learned as we've matured over the years and knowing each other and our work that we both have to exist in this spectrum sure. in order to really create long-term sustainable systemic change. Yeah. And so I show up with my 56 items that don't all grow in San Antonio. Um, but now you know what a kiwi is then, you know, and we take it for granted. When I was 10, I was at a softball party and my coach for my softball team was this man named Roy Mendez. His daughter, Anne, I met her when I was eight years old in the third grade. She was the first girl that I talked to at Blessed Sacrament. And, um, and I transferred in from public school because I got in trouble in second grade at public school. And my parents <laughs> had me on a waiting list, so they sent me to Blessed Sacrament. And I meet this girl. And shortly after that, I met her family. And her family owned a produce company, and that company was called Big State Produce. Oh. The Mendes family has been in produce in this city for over 90 years now. Um, oh. Under a couple of different names, but Big State since about 1972. And Roy um, is like my second dad. Our dads met. He was my softball coach. He took me to my first Spurs game. They used to take me on trips with them. My dad worked at Solo Serve. Are you from San yes. Antonio? Solo yes. Serve. Thank you. We know where that is. <laughs> yeah. um, I was the Solo Serve kid. I saw all of them get opened. I saw all of them get closed. My dad was the general manager for a number of years. That's where my selling came from. Mm. And I used to sit up in like the windows and watch the people shop. I still do that. <laughs> and so Ann's dad owned this produce company with his family. And at this softball party that, that they had, he brought this big bowl of fruit. And there was this chunks of green stuff in it. And I asked him, I have a picture of it actually, and I, of this moment. And I asked him, what is that? And he goes, that's honeydew, Jamie. It's the money melon. I thought when I was 10 that he called it the money melon because it was green like money. The real reason that they call honeydew the money melon was because it's the most expensive thing of a melon. And at that oh. time, super popular and still super popular to put on like, um, uh, what is it, like breakfast buffets and like, right. You know, right, okay. And nobody eats it. No. It mostly gets thrown away. And we charge a lot of money for that. It's the money melon. And at that point in like 87, 88, it was, it was like, all of a sudden there was like, there's not just cantaloupe, there's honeydew. And, <laughs> and I was fascinated by that. And so when I was 19, I took a job there to write checks. And they had always been a part of my family since then. Our dads drank at the same bar. They're still drinking buddies today. They are desk mates at this point. My father started working here a year after me. I have seniority. And, um, <laughs> and they, they do, they share a space today. I call them my two dads. And not all of Roy's children are involved in the company. Um, and Anne is not involved in the company, actually. But we have multiple siblings. And so Anne's sisters are both involved in the company. They're the same ages as my brothers. Mm. And so we literally all grew up with each other. And the youngest sister of, of that grouping of Mendes's runs the day-to-day -day of Big State Produce today. Nice. I was also there the day that she was born. Nice. Yeah, and so, and I don't. I only have brothers, and I loosely call them brothers. But um, <laughs> if I was going to choose a sister, it would have been Karen Mendes. And when I left healthcare, I knew 
that she had made the decision to be a part of the family business in a way that I didn't think any of that generation of Mendes children would be. And that moment I found out, I put into motion leaving healthcare to go back to work mm-hmm. produce. And there's times that we haven't gotten along. That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> more, like, that's, a, that's a whole other thing. I ended up opening my own business later. But um, I came back there at the beginning of COVID. Mm-hmm. After I'd broken my neck and, and things changed and the box started from there. Yeah. yeah. That's a big fresh market box. Yes. Let's talk about that. Okay. Because you were on, and sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, but you were on uh, SA Live. Uh, that was a great segment. Um, but so I, I do want to talk, a, well, I'll let you talk about Big Fresh Market Box. Okay. Just kind of like how it started, um, who is it for? Um, but I also want to get into this because I just picked up on it watching your interview, right? Watching that segment. You talk about um, the there's a lot of passion behind the goal to get people excited about produce. And so as you were saying that, like I sensed your excitement and it makes me excited if you can't tell already. Because <laughs> I'm a nerd about I and we'll get into it right what I want to do and so I when I watched that I was like yes this is great and then it made me realize there's people already doing what you want to do so you need to just get on the ball already but anyway uh I'll let you talk about Big Fresh Market Box um so a few years before COVID Mm -hmm. I started wanting to do this box of produce for people and to go sell it at these little artisan markets like we just talked about Mm -hmm. and do little markets there and like it killed us it was horrible it was hot we'd stand there for hours and hours nobody would come Mm -hmm. and I ended up parting ways with Big State at that time and and starting my own company and I was still trying to do that and that's when I ended up making the salsa Mm -hmm. however when COVID hit nobody knew what to do and Karen and I sat at the same table for the first time in a few years, still very angry at each other. And her uncle and her dad and my dad were like, well, what do y'all think we should do? And we all looked at each other and we're like, we should sell produce boxes. And, uh, <laughs> and Karen started selling banana boxes filled with produce off of the dock. And people were driving up and getting them. Oh. Yep. And those were like 35 pounds. It was really feeding into that fear that was going on though. And we knew that. And over time, we were like, this is not a, this is not what we really want to be doing with it if we're going to keep doing it. Yeah. Not sustainable, not good for anybody. Also, we were just trying to get rid of produce then. Nobody was buying it, right? Um, I started to try to put together a different kind of box with different people. Like, I was going to take this box and do it with different organizations because they all wanted to feed people. And I was like, you can't just give it away in a parking lot. Let me help you do this. And, um, and I had been involved with the Food Policy Council for a number of years prior to that. On a volunteer basis, um, I walked into my first meeting six years ago because of a chef named Stephen Paprocki, um, who was on the board at the time, and was like, do they need you there? Like, they have lofty ideas, they need somebody real. And they did have a lot of lofty ideas, and so do I, but they also needed somebody to be like, okay, those are too lofty. And um, the Healthy Corner Store program was born there, but also it helped me figure out what I was really trying to do in food and how to gear it toward community and really what that meant to me as a as a distributor. Hmm. And I made some really great friends in that group over the years. And I got a phone call the day of the distribution that happened at Trader's Village that ended up on the cover of Time Magazine with the San Antonio Food Bank where this 
huge line of people looped through Trader's Village. It was there? It was at Trader's Village. I don't know Village. why I thought it was at right here on Northside. Yeah, no, no, I think that was at Trader's Village. There wow. was many. And I get a phone call from Mitch Hagney, who was the president of Food Policy Council at the time. Mm-hmm. And he said, Jamie, I'm about to go into a meeting with a couple of county commissioners, a city councilman, and Judge Wolf, mm. who he's kind of my produce hero, by the way. And uh, he used to own Sun Harvest. So Nelson Wolf? Nelson Wolf. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, he's a produce man. He speaks my language. Oh, that's wow. How, that's how I got that box. And so they said that they, the county at the time wanted to do something to stop the lines. Okay, they're like, that can't keep happening. It's not sustainable, like all this stuff. Some people can probably afford produce too. And let's maybe help them. And some people can't even get in those lines. And yeah. those people probably mm. need it even more. And mm. they said, we, we think we're going to do like this box delivery thing. Do you want to be the produce lady for that? And I literally said, fuck yes. Like I absolutely <laughs> said fuck yes to him. And I was like, yeah, fuck yes. And I was like, I've been, I've been training for this like most of my adult life at this point. <laughs> and I hung up the phone and I, I remember... And it, when he first called, he goes, are you seeing what's happening? I was like, it's the middle of COVID. Like, we're in COVID. And I was like, what else could be possibly happening? Like, what do you think I'm seeing? And I saw the line already on TV, and that was why he was calling. But, um, And I said yes. And I hung up the phone, and I cried. And I was just like, I'm going to do this. And so they called me back, and they said, hey, this is what it looks like. I put together an idea for them. They had a website that they were already building. No name or anything like that. It was like county box distribution <laughs> and um, a nonprofit uh, called USDR, uh, US Digital Response. Uh, they go around the country. It's like a bunch of like really big tech people and they build digital responses to crises for different cities and organizations wow. like collecting data for COVID response and vaccines. Also building websites for home delivery produce boxes so that you can put more food out in your community. And we were one of them. And the county was gifted that. And then they gifted it to my business. They weren't going to. They were going to gift it to Culinaria and Johnny Hernandez, whose name is coming up in this conversation for some reason. But they were going to gift it to him. And Justin Rodriguez, the county commissioner, he was on Facebook. And I knew that he was the one that was really pushing for all this. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly he had this idea to give it to Johnny Hernandez because he wanted, this is what they told me, he ate at La Gloria and he really was enjoying it and he thought maybe we should give it to Johnny, which is probably not a true story, knowing the county commissioner. But that's what they told me at the time. And I was like, I cannot lose this right now. Our business is failing. And so I saw him on Facebook giving out food live. And I also just so happened to go to the same high school as Justin Rodriguez. He's two years older than me. He went to Antonian. His brother was my friend in high school. We were not friendly where it was like, hey, Justin. But I felt comfortable enough messaging him on that platform because mm-hmm. of that, right? Mm-hmm. And I was like, he was all, if anybody has ideas, I was like, I have ideas. I'm already working on one for you. And I messaged, I, I commented, and I messaged him privately. He responded to me within five minutes. Nice. And I told him who I was and what I was trying to do. And I reminded him that I went to Antonian, and he was always very nice to me. And uh, <laughs> I did. I was, that was like, I'm, that was my, I was like, I'm leveraging this. He was always very nice to everybody. And, um, and he said, send me an email. And I sent him that email really late on a Sunday night. At that point, I was like, this is the best email I've ever written. This is. I've <laughs> a lot of emails since then. And he emailed me back at like 8.07 Monday morning. And he said, you have a meeting tomorrow with my, uh, my, my chief of staff. And with Mitch, 
and his chief of staff is a woman named Francesca uh, Cavallero, who also happened to go, who happened to go to Antonia, and that was just weird, she's much younger than us, and that was like not a thing, um, and we've learned that since then, um, and they were very open to what we were trying to do. They awarded Big State Produce the website in perpetuity, as long as we promised to take care of it in a number of ways, and so... During COVID, when a company like this would have never invested in something like that, produce companies don't buy that, we got a website. And then we had, the, the, we had to be able to launch that website. We did it with USDR and built out the home delivery produce boxes, mm-hmm. called it Big Fresh Pro, uh, Market Box. Now it's Big Fresh Market Box and Produce Markets. But it's called Big Fresh because that came from Big State Produce and from Unifresh. Oh. And I helped build those two companies like in different times and in different ways. And the Mendes family is like my family. I would not be in produce if it wasn't for them, nor would I be doing any of this, right? And there's times when when we all don't like each other, and there's times when we do, and most of the time we do, but they gave me the opportunity to do this there. Um, this isn't; These aren't popular programs. These yeah. aren't the kind of things that produce companies typically do in, mm-hmm. in the way that we're doing them. And, and I built out the home delivery model. And then I'm like, okay, you gave me a website. I'm knocking each other. That's not. Uh, <laughs> it's fine. Am I knocking on the door? It goes with the thing. But it's somebody there. And so I, I'm knocking on the, the commissioner's door, and I'm like, okay, you gave me this website, but, like, I can't even, like, I don't even have money to promote it. You know, like, this is COVID. Like, there's no, right. there's no marketing budget. And um, we were able to secure ARPA funds. Not ARPA funds, sorry. CARES Act funds initially for an initial delivery through the 78207 zip code, and then a county-wide delivery that took about nine months. We delivered over 12,000 produce boxes. The county commissioner's court granted us a quarter of a million dollars for those first rounds of distribution. Nice. Part of why I got that box and was able to build the Big Fresh Market box, which if you've not seen it, and I drove up and I was like, I've never delivered a box here yet. The Big Fresh Market box is a produce box that goes to every single home in Bear County for $25 or $30 with no delivery fee. If you have a door, I will get it to you. There is a little box, a big box, and a fruit box. There is not a small box because I'm little, I'm not small. <laughs> <laughs> the boxes weigh 18 to 22 pounds. It's an 80-20 split of vegetables to fruit. Nice. Um, and that mix usually has about 15 or 16 different items. During COVID, most people were receiving boxes that the government was handing out mm-hmm. that had like, four items or like five pounds of potatoes, five pounds of oranges, and then like two gallons of milk. I don't do milk. But um, but that is not nutritionally sound. That is not made for eating. Like I said, you're barely sustaining on that. Yeah. You know, how are you gonna thrive, much less survive? Mm-hmm. These boxes aren't like that. But they are used in a variety of distributions. So you can go on the website and order the box. Or an organization might be helping fund a box and you could be receiving it for some reason like the American Heart Association. And I have programs with organizations like them, and I continue to have programming with Justin Rodriguez's office that allow us to offset the purchase of certain boxes and the produce at our produce markets. So what if you, it's barely out of reach, you know, and we're evolving those programs to be even more inclusive for everyone, no matter what their income is, mm-hmm. no matter what their neighborhood is, we want to reward you for buying fresh produce. Yeah. If you're going to spend money on produce, then I'm going to give you some more and somebody else is going to help pay for that, right? Mm-hmm. That is how we create habit-changing things. That's how we change people's lives, not just by dropping boxes on their yeah. door, even though we did. Um, so like today, you're going to get a carrot and a yellow onion and a red onion, and you're going to get a couple 
couple of pears and a couple of lemons and avocados spinach and mushrooms and mm, I'm missing good. yeah <laughs> I'm real hungry <laughs> and that's supposed to get you excited right and so um, those boxes the the big fresh market box mm-hmm. they they exist that way now and the American Heart Association who is one of my primary partners they were my first corporate sponsor because you don't mm-hmm. really get to count like the government as your corporate sponsor I have a lot of government contracts but not like that the American Heart Association heard me speaking at an event and they tracked me down and they called the office and they said, we heard this lady with blue hair, they were on Zoom, uh, talking about produce and is that her? Can, is, does she work here? And they said, yes. And the Heart Association approached me initially about launching my produce markets that I wanted to do. Yeah. When there's not a box, there's a market. How do I get you to buy the box? You come to my market, mm-hmm. you come and hang out there, you buy produce, you volunteer. When you volunteer, you get free produce. When you volunteer three times, you earn a box. And we're having conversations about produce then at the table. Yeah. And we're empowering people to be at that table with us. Mm-hmm. You're not just being handed something that you have no choice. Sure. You may not even know what you want your choice to be. Like I said in the beginning, food insecurity is a huge problem. There's 33 million people in the United States that are counted as food insecure. Mm. Okay. And that's a large number of people. That's a devastating number. But Can those- you... Um- I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Can you um, kind of go into what uh, food insecurity is? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. So the, the basic idea is that food insecurity are people who do not have regular access to food. The mm-hmm. most basic, basic answer. And that term is going away and it's going to be called food apartheid soon. That's a huge movement because it's not that you're insecure. The structure of where you live is preventing that also, mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. just your income. And that's why we look at nutrition insecurity as well. Mm. San Antonio doesn't just have food deserts. We live in a huge food swamp. Food swamps are different than food deserts. Food deserts are when you don't have access to a, uh, a grocery store within like two to five miles. I mean, mm. five miles from a store is, it's crazy. You know, like most of us can even imagine that. But when you live on the rural south side, that's every day, right? And so, sure. Um, so that is like that's like the basis of what a food desert is. Food swamps are when we have these things like stores and choice, or there's in between the stores a lot of like food options, mm-hmm. but none of those options are really healthy or nutritionally sound. Mm-hmm. Yes. And now we're having to make those choices because that's what sells well in our neighborhood because that's all we really know, and that's all anybody's ever told us to know. Plus, we live a convenience lifestyle, yep. mm-hmm. and and we have to live it. We live in a society that kind of requires that. So even when we have really good intentions, like the Toyota squash that sits there, um, <laughs> life derails us. Mm-hmm. And we don't get to make those choices. And we're eating Whataburger again at like 10.30, and that's our dinner. And I like Whataburger, but I've had that so many times. Yeah. And I'm tired, and I'm not going to like cook that day. And I don't even want the damn tomato on it that day because I still have PTSD of when I sold them tomatoes. And so, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of reasons. And ketchup's not a vegetable. So, um, but that happens a lot also just because of, like, our job and our way of life. It may not be because you don't have the income or because you don't live in that neighborhood. Um, but what if you work in the neighborhood where there's none of those things as well? People work. They spend more time in the area that they work than they do in the area that they live most of the time. Mm-hmm. So now what are you going to do, right? And so it's not just a problem of the neighborhood that people live in. 
it's also the problem in the neighborhood that you work in, that you shop in, mm-hmm. that you go to the doctor in. You know, it's all of our problem. And so, but food insecurity, what it really looks like for the people that are not counted, because 33 million people are counted. Mm-hmm. They're the ones that are qualifying for things like Medicaid and food stamps. They're, they're being counted. They're filling out those applications, right? Mm-hmm. But there's so many of us that live in the margin in between that, that we have a little too much to qualify for anything and not enough to feel secure. Yeah. We are I feel like at I the high, absolutely. Most of us in Bear County do. We live in this high risk bracket of like when the car catastrophically breaks down, we're starting to make decisions. We're never caught up on bills. We're always almost there. The mm. air breaks down. The, you know, there's a sudden medical bill. Ugh. And now we're making different choices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now we're making even poorer choices for ourselves. And we can't even, and now we feel bad about that. Yeah. And, yeah. and we just keep making ourselves feel bad because we have an unhealthy relationship with food. Because most of the time, like, you don't want to just eat for sustenance. You want to eat for pleasure. Sure. You want to eat for fun. You want to eat with family and to build community. And even the people that tell you that they don't care about community and they don't want to be part of community and they just want to be themselves, like by themselves, their thing is that. You know, so yeah. we all like, we're all part of something at that point. Um, I wanted to make sure that people had more choices. Mm-hmm. And then why aren't they going to buy the box? Well, they're not going to buy the box because they don't know what to do with it anyway. In the United States, one in ten adults eats enough fresh fruits and vegetables every day. One in ten. That means Dang. that even like the three of us, mm-hmm. that we're not eating any fresh fruits and vegetables. <laughs> I, I, I can tell you right now. And, so, <laughs> and, and, and that is 300 million. They can't get the food, okay? But of those, the, but there's like 270 million more people who consistently do have that access in mm-hmm. some way. Maybe it's not the best access. Maybe you can't always afford artichokes, but you're buying like canned artichoke carts or whatever it is. But you have the ability in some way to get enough fruits and vegetables mm-hmm. every day. You just don't think about it. Mm-hmm. And why don't you think about it? Because nobody ever told you to think about it that yeah. way. They only ever told you from that mindset of being more healthy, right? Like, and then that's that you know that conversation with a doctor or with a healthcare professional. We have an even worse relationship with healthcare in this country. Mm-hmm. We have a healthcare industry that doesn't understand food. Yep. And we have a food industry that doesn't understand health. Mm-hmm. And that is why we are highly food illiterate. And that is why we don't make those choices. And that's the, is that the nutrition insecurity you're talking about? Yes. Being food illiterate? Yeah, absolutely. I did a talk at a, at a heart association event with a bunch of, of older people, it was sure. at the Rojo, and I went up there and I did my presentation between two doctors. And I knew those presentations were going to be like, heart disease is the number one killer of adults in the United States. Um, every 60 seconds, a woman dies in the United States mm. of heart disease. Mm-hmm. It is the number one killer. Mm-hmm. And they're going to go up there and they're going to be... You need to eat better because everyone's dying. You're going to have to... They're so boring and it's a breakfast... I get up there and I put up this meme and it's the guy like the one where the guy's sitting at a table and it's always like, you know, I disagree with whatever this is. Change my mind. Oh, yeah. That one. And on there it said, um, you don't uh, you don't hate vegetables. Your parents just didn't know how to cook. And I went up there. (laughs) And I went up there. I told all those old ladies that by the end they were they were. 
clapping for the fruta de la fruta. Um, <laughs> they oh, still yeah. get conversations about that, and people recognize me from that talk. And it was, it was about how to do this differently, how to empower yourself with food. Mm-hmm. Part of why I took the box to the market was also because it overlaps with the Healthy Corner Store program. Mm-hmm. If I have produce in a bodega or a corner store in that neighborhood, mm-hmm. then it's always there in some way. Mm-hmm. And if I'm there telling you at a produce market where you're having this like farmer's market experience for the first time, mm-hmm. this is what it all is. These are the things. Touch it. Shop with us. My dudes that come that aren't the volunteers, my actual staff, they look like bouncers and they look like they should be like <laughs> roadies and they're amazing and I love them. And the, and the community absolutely. A fruit roadie. Yes. I want to be a fruit roadie. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. One of them looks like Scotty in from Anthrax. I love those dudes. <laughs> and so, um, and Lee and Mike come down like almost everyone and they have M. And so we're, I mean, we're like the bad news bears of produce out there. But we're having a good time with people and we're very approachable. And people look at us and we're very, like, you know, I may yeah. be the produce lady, but Mike's the guy with the long beard. Then he's like, you should buy a kiwi. And um, <laughs> and people feel good about that, right? Yeah. They want to have a good time. We're creating space for community in places of community. We're at libraries. Sure. We're at schools. We're going to hospitals. Yes. We have produce markets at hospitals so that you have a different reason to walk into a hospital. Mm. Nobody likes to go to the hospital here. Yeah. Nobody likes to go to the doctor here. Yeah. When you go to the hospital, ninety nine point nine percent of the time, you're going there for a bad reason. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're going there for a bad reason. On the rare occasion that it's one, the birth of a baby, and everybody's happy about it, mm-hmm. or you're having like some sort of cosmetic surgery that's just going to amplify how you look, and you really feel good about that. Those are the only positive reasons people go into a hospital right, right. now. Yeah, I can't think of another one. No. No, 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 no. I worked in a hospital. There aren't any. Like, there's nobody, nobody, nobody walks in for a good reason. But they started to when we started selling produce at them. And we do that at the Christus Hospitals now mm-hmm. with the American Heart Association. Um, and so at the Westover Hills Hospital, I'm there once a month. Mm-hmm. Um, I will be there this coming Friday, actually. Nice. And we open up. We sell in the... In the in the lobby of the hospital, the staff shops, people that are randomly there shop. I've been going to that one for over a year, so people in the neighborhood know we're gonna come. And the first time you see a group of people sitting in the lobby of a hospital, stand up to line up to buy produce, it's the only reason they're there. Like, you can't help but feel good. Yeah. You know, when you deliver that box to somebody that they bought it off the website, and then all of a sudden later you're getting emails, and they're like, you're the best part of my Saturday, or, because a doctor prescribed it. And we have a program with the Heart Association where doctors in San Antonio are prescribing the Big Fresh Market box if you test positive for nutrition insecurity. They ask a couple of questions. A lot of seniors are getting them. That's yeah. awesome. And so we deliver that same box. And that starts that change of habit. We yeah. have people that get that box that start coming to the markets and vice versa. And, and we see a lot of crossover. And as we've continued to see that and we see that growth, um, it's amazing. Like it's, yeah. You know, you've, you've kind of come full circle. Like, now that I'm hearing your whole story, mm-hmm. it's like you started with the question about the money melon and then just, yeah, just full circle. Yeah. Including, like, your career. All right. We hope you enjoyed part one. Please join us tomorrow for part two of Off the Cuff with Jamie Gonzalez.